Well, in recent weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jeremiah, a man who for 40 years served as God's spokesperson at a difficult time in Jewish history. The people are engaged in all sorts of evil behavior. They were led by corrupt leaders. And Jeremiah was told by God to warn them that if they didn't change their wicked ways, their unrighteousness, their idolatry, their tolerance of injustice against the poor and widows and immigrants and children, that he would destroy them. And so Jeremiah did what God asked of him, but they didn't take it very well. In fact, to think, make matters worse, in addition to not listening, they decided to go after him. Now, one day God came to Jeremiah with a request, and the story we're going to look at today begins with chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 1172, page 1172, although the words will also be on the screen. Here's the way the story begins in verse 2. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. In his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. So just to kind of summarize here, the potter's working on a pot. It didn't turn out as he hoped, so he smashed it and started over again. And notice it says that the clay was marred. We don't know exactly what that means, but it may have been there was a rock in the the clay or some kind of imperfection. Maybe it was too dry. Whatever it was, the potter at that point wasn't able to make it in exactly the form that he originally envisioned. So he changed his plan and made something different. Regardless, Jeremiah is impressed with the control that this potter has over the clay. He says that he made it into something that was good. Then the God uses this object lesson to explain a larger truth. So in verses 6 to 11, he says this, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord, Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, Israel. If that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I'd intended for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Now, he's saying, if only, Israel, you would be able to allow yourself to do what the potter has done to the clay, to reform it into something new. If only you would listen, if you'd repent and obey, then I'll reconsider the punishment that I have planned for you. And Jeremiah is getting at something important here. It's a question that many of us have, and that is the relationship between God's control over history and human freedom. How do those two interact and intersect? Let me just say that the Bible affirms both, that God is in charge, that he controls the events of history, and yet his control does not override human freedom. God's control isn't deterministic, Some set, something set up from the beginning of time that unflows as an inflexible plan. God's plans are flexible and take into account the actions of human beings. We're even told here and on other occasions that God changes his mind. Now, let me just be clear. That doesn't mean that there's a change in God's character, a change in his judgment about moral principles, or even about a change in his ultimate plan for history, for God is eternally self-consistent. And yet God does his work in part based on how people respond or don't respond. Many of the times, by the way, in the Bible that it talks about God changing his mind or relenting or something like that involves setting aside a punishment that he had planned, not 
choosing to, uh, whether, you know, excuse me, uh, plan, uh, setting aside a punishment he had planned um, if people repent and choose to obey God. In other words, God's not capricious. He doesn't suddenly decide to wipe someone out without warning. Instead, any change in direction often is in the direction of blessing rather than in, in judgment. But there is a tension here that makes many uncomfortable. God is clearly in charge, and yet we're also free. For some, the idea that human beings have any power appears to make God dependent upon us, but that's not the way Jeremiah sees it. On one hand, he saw a craftsman completely in control. He does what he plans without asking the clay's permission, and the end product is what he envisioned. God's control over things is similar. He plans and he accomplishes what he chooses. But on the other hand, it's not completely a one-sided affair. In this case, there is something in the clay that causes the potter to change his original intention. And while the potter has power to change the clay, the clay is responsible to cooperate with the potter, allowing him to do what he sees as best. And Jeremiah holds these two ideas in tension. And the final result is a mysterious combination of the sovereign will of the potter and the free will of the clay. Now, what's reassuring here, should give us confidence, is that God remains in control and sovereign over the entire result, the big picture. If God has an overarching plan, it will be accomplished. That much we know for sure. At the same time, he takes into account the way we respond to him. The result is neither rigid determinism nor a free-for-all with the final outcome in question. In other words, God isn't just hoping things turn out the way he wants. There's a plan for history. God's in charge, and yet he grants us freedom and responds to human choices. He's never limited by them in the long term. Now, what's sobering about this for us is that while we are truly free, that freedom comes with responsibility. And with responsibility comes the opportunity to misuse it. We have the capacity to cooperate with God. And while none of us do that perfectly, in general, if we choose to surrender, submit our will to God, to obey what he asks of us, he will be able to work in and through us to accomplish his purposes. But if we do not, there are consequences. In today's story, after a time of repeated and sustained disobedience, God had plans to punish the people. But in chapter 18, out of love and mercy, he gives them another chance. He's not going to override their free will to obey or disobey, but the logic is clear. Judgment's coming, but if you repent, I'll change my plan. In other words, work with me, change your ways, and I'll call the whole thing off. So what happened? Well, we find out in verse 12, but let me set it up again by rereading verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it is no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So what happens here is, in the end, despite God's offer to set aside his plan to destroy them, they tell God, basically, don't waste your breath. We'll continue to live however we jolly well please. And we're stubborn. We're proud of it. So yes, we are going to continue to pursue our evil plans. So what's God's response? Well, here's what he says beginning in verse 13. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? Skipping to verse 15. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which have made them stumble in their ways. Therefore, their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. 
Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of disaster. So he's saying, how foolish are you? And he says their rejection of his offer is stubborn and irrational. You could even say that God's saying, how stupid could you be? When I was growing up, I loved sports, and I would, given, would have given almost anything to have been a great athlete, but genetically that was just not in the cards. I had very modest athletic ability. Um, but I went to school with some kids that were pretty good. One of them, probably the best athlete in, in my middle school and high school, was a guy named Jimmy. Uh, he was hands down the best basketball player in our school, even as a sophomore. Um, and uh, coaches from the University of Kansas, the Jayhawks, Rock Chalk, um, came to watch him play when he was a sophomore in college. That's how good he was. Jimmy loved basketball, but he didn't like school so much. And so by the time he was a junior, um, he hadn't attended enough to even be eligible, and he was eventually kicked off the team. He left school, and I really don't know what happened to him. But I was completely baffled by his choices. It didn't make sense to me. I would have given anything to have his ability. God doesn't understand the choices of the people of Judah. Reading between the lines, you can hear him saying, how could you be so stupid? How could you desert me and burn incense to uh, worthless idols? How could you wander from the straight and narrow and get stuck in the mud? Everyone who passes by you shakes their head in amazement at your foolishness. And when your enemies come, I will turn my back on you and refuse to come when you cry out to me. So the people reject God's offer of plan B. He says, I have no other choice but to implement his original plan. And this is where the story gets personal because they end up shooting the messenger, essentially. What they hear Jeremiah say, they decide they're going to go after him. So this is where the the story in verse 18 takes a turn uh, against Jeremiah. It says, they said, let's make a plan against Jeremiah for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease. Nor will counsel from the wise, nor will the word from the prophets. So come, let us attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. So Jeremiah's afraid and he turns to God. Verse 19, listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they've dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death. Their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they've dug a pit for me to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, O Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. So in their stubbornness, they decide they don't like what God has to say, and so they're going to go after his messenger, after Jeremiah. By the way, the conspirators are not some low-life rabble-rousers. These are the elite, the, the, the ruling establishment that's going after him. And their campaign is not just to, to influence public opinion, but ultimately they want to see Jeremiah killed. So Jeremiah cries out. He asks God for help and says, Why would they want to harm me? I was only trying to protect them from your anger. I've had it. Have at them, God, he says. Let them starve. Let them die. Let me hear them scream when the army from the north comes against us. Instead of thanking me for warning them, they're plotting against me. Don't forgive them. Go ahead. Crush them. Does that bother you? Bothers me. Death to your enemies? Really? It's easy to get shocked by what Jeremiah prays. I'm not going to justify it, but let me just uh, say, I, I won't make too many excuses, but we need to remember that Jeremiah is a human being. In fact, a sometimes all-too-human being. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, we have sometimes had the very same thought. Someone's hurt us, maybe personally, or maybe it's a public official, a leader, or someone else, and we want to call down fire from heaven on them, don't we? Jeremiah was in great danger. He was being treated unjustly. He knew, as the Bible tells us, that God hears the cry of the poor, so he cried out to God. That's important. His prayer here is to God. Even though he's praying for revenge, he's giving the issue over to God. He's not taking things into his own hands. Now, I don't believe that we ought to use Jeremiah as an example and and maybe as permission even to pray as he does. But we can understand his feelings and know also that he didn't have something that we have. And that is the example of Jesus who said, who told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Well, the story of chapter 18 gives way to another story in chapter 19, also involving a pot, although this time it's not a pot made out of uh, wet clay, but a pot that's already been formed and fired. It's hard and brittle. And here's the way the story unfolds. Now, let me just tell you, this is a long section, so hang with me. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 19, verse 1. Go and buy a clay pot from a potter and take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they've forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as an offering to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call this place Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Hidden, but the valley of slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all of its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy excuse me, to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching, and say to them, This is what the Lord Almighty says I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And skipping to verse 14. Jeremiah then returned to Topeth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I've pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to to my words. So Jeremiah buys a pot at God's instruction and he takes some of the leaders to the town dump and he predicts that a disaster is about to overcome the city because they've forsaken God, they've pursued wickedness, they've worshipped idols, they've killed innocent children through child sacrifice, something so horrible, he says, that it never even crossed God's mind. By the way, the blood of innocent children here reminds us of the horror of abortion today. It's a complicated issue. Let me say, it's clear for us to be pro-life means we also need to support all women who find themselves with that difficult choice. But children are precious. 
And adults ought not make decisions to end the life of any child, no matter how inconvenient it might be. Jeremiah told them that God would soon permit an invading army to reduce the city to rubble. And while they watched, he smashed this jar as a symbol of what was about to come. So did this get their attention? Well, the answer is yes. But did it change them? Absolutely not. They stubbornly refused to listen to him. Now, the story of chapter 19 is very different than the story of chapter 18. In both stories, there's a a, a pot. Um, But the story in chapter 18, while it ends badly, at least has some hope. The hope is that perhaps, like the wet clay, the people would allow themselves to be reformed by God. But here in chapter 19, this flawed pot, which cannot be reshapened because it's brittle and hard, can only be broken. So the message is that as long as the people remain like wet clay, the wet clay in chapter 18, there's hope. They could repent and change. God would change his plan then from plan A to plan B. But if they refused to repent, at some point they would so harden themselves against God that change would be impossible and judgment would be inevitable. In a few weeks, we're going to talk more about judgment and how Jeremiah views this. Um, But let me today point out that these stories remind us that God is a God of second and third and 134th chances. But he's also saddened and grieved over what's going on in the world, and he will not let evil go on forever. God is not an easygoing, undemanding God. We can never minimize the seriousness of human choices and legitimacy of God's response. Both love and judgment are central dimensions of God's character. Now, spoiler alert, one day, as Jeremiah will predict, God's final solution to this is Jesus' death on the cross. The shattered pot reminds us that we cannot reject God forever. We're accountable to him. The offer of forgiveness remains open, but for now, it won't remain open forever. That said, as long as we have breath as human beings, there is still time for us to repent. The encounter in chapter 19 brings on yet another shoot-the-messenger moment. Now, if we had time, we would spend a little more time looking at this, but we don't. So let me just summarize it quickly. And the short version is is that after Jeremiah broke the pot, the priest who's in charge gets very upset and decides to arrest Jeremiah. He puts him in the stocks and leaves him there overnight. He whips him as well. The next day, he reconsiders what he's done. He releases Jeremiah, but not before Jeremiah has kind of unloaded on him and... uh, predicted the priest's demise. This priest's attempt to intimidate Jeremiah didn't work. You can shut Jeremiah up in the stocks, but you can't shut him up. Um, Jeremiah is committed to tell the people what God had him to say. He calls out their idolatry and unrighteousness. He points out their injustice, their neglect of the poor, their oppression of the vulnerable, their mistreatment of immigrants. But the main point of Jeremiah's message in his day was the urgent need the people had to repent and obey. But what about us? How can we live it? How can we learn to put what we have just learned into practice? I mentioned earlier how Jeremiah noticed that the clay that the potter had was marred, and he had to change his plans and make it into something else. And yet we're told what he made was best, at least the best that could be done. In other words, it was made into a useful pot. Jeremiah was impressed with what the potter was able to do with the clay, and so too we should be impressed with what God can do with our lives. If we surrender to him, as flawed as we may be, we too will experience what God, the divine potter, can do with the clay of our lives. This starts with acknowledging that we are flawed, that we've sinned, 
fact that we're more sinful and broken than maybe we've ever been willing to admit. And yet we are more loved and cherished than we ever could have imagined. That Jesus died so that we might be able to have a relationship with God and begin that remolding process yet once again. And if we allow God to remold us, he will make us into something useful, even make something beautiful out of our lives. And it's never too early and never too late for God to work with us. It can be uncomfortable and painful, and yet it's necessary. So can you not trust Jesus with your lives? Now, there is a warning here. We don't want to hear, always want to hear what God has to say. We don't always like what God wants to do with us. But we must acknowledge that he is God and we are not, and he is far wiser than we are. And we can trust him to work in our lives, skillfully forming us into something that he wants us to be. God doesn't give up on us. He doesn't discard us just because the first attempt doesn't go the way that he had hoped. And if we repent, he will start over with us. If we're responsive to God, we are, can be mercifully shaped into something that is both useful and beautiful. But if we refuse, if we harden ourselves against him, eventually he will not be able to work with us. It's important that we not let our hearts grow too hard. Recently, there have been some who have commented about how God can use even those who are far from perfect to accomplish his purposes, business leaders, entertainers, politicians, etc. And in one sense, that's certainly true. And it's good because none of us are perfect. But at the same time, the overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that God uses people of character to accomplish his purposes. So we need to intentionally pursue righteousness if we want to be the sort of people that God can use. In their stubbornness, the people of Jeremiah's day turned their backs on God and in doing so missed the blessing of being shaped by God into something useful and beautiful. So let's not make the same mistake today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. It's a difficult one, a challenging one. But thank you for Jeremiah's faithfulness and courage and continuing to hold out um, to, to show sin for what it is, but also to hold out your offer of forgiveness if we repent. Father, we know that you are the divine potter who is at work in our lives. And may we be like wet clay, be, being willing to be remade into something useful and beautiful for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.